Welcome to Doctors of the Church. In this fascinating series, Father Charles Connor examines the lives and writings of all 33 Doctors of the Church, including St. Thomas Aquinas, Teresa of Avila, John of the Cross, and Catherine of Siena. Now, here's Father Connor. Welcome once again to our study of the Doctors of the Church. This time we're going to go to the Middle Ages. When we speak of the Middle Ages, we are speaking of that period of time roughly from the end of antiquity to the beginning of the Renaissance. Or more practically, we're talking about the period of time from the 7th until the 14th centuries. That would be considered the Middle Ages. Now, within the Middle Ages, in this particular broadcast, we are going to concentrate on the 13th century, the 1200s, and we're going to look at the careers of two men who lived in the 1200s and whom the church has proclaimed to be among her doctors. One was the angelic doctor, the Dominican Thomas Aquinas. The other was the seraphic doctor, the Franciscan Bonaventure. In 1568, St. Thomas Aquinas was named a doctor of the church by his fellow Dominican, Pope St. Pius V. Twenty years later, in 1588, St. Bonaventure was named a doctor of the church by his fellow Franciscan, Pope Sixtus V. But both of these men had lived in the 1200s, in the 13th century. In a previous series on the network, we looked at both Aquinas and Bonaventure as defenders of faith. In this series, we want to look at them in a somewhat different vein as doctors of the church. Now, to do that, we have to look just a little more closely at the period of time in which they lived, the 1200s, the, the 13th century. This was the later Middle Ages. This was the flowering of the Middle Ages. There's hardly an area of life in the 13th century in which we cannot find the strong, strong influence of the Catholic Church permeating into all and every aspect of culture and civilization. The 13th century, the, the 1200s, was the beginning of the great universities at Paris, at Oxford, at Cambridge, at Naples, and at Salamanca. It was the period of the Fourth Lateran Council in the Church's history. It was the period of the Crusades. And we must confess that it was even the period of the low point of the Inquisition. There's something else very interesting that happened in the 13th century, and that was the rise of new religious orders. The entire psychology of the monastic life seemed to undergo a change in the 13th century. Now, prior to the 13th century, we had had centuries of monastic life in the church. We talked about it when we looked at the Western doctors and the Eastern doctors, these, these much earlier men. And the monastic life, as it had developed up until the 13th century, was a, a way of life that one undertook when he wanted to escape and flee from the world for the sanctification of his own soul, or her own soul, if, if a woman went to a convent, for the remission of his or her sins, for the apostle of praying for a sinful world. But in any event, the monastic life meant enclosure. It meant separation. It meant getting away from the culture, getting away from the mores, getting away from the secularity, getting away from people, enclosing oneself within monastic walls. 
And up until the 13th century, that really was monastic life in the Catholic Church. But in the 13th century, that began to change. Because with so many people going to monasteries and, and closing themselves up, not, not that they were not doing good, they, they preserved education and learning in many, many ways, but they were not directly working with people. And it was seen very clearly by the 13th century that many people were deficient in the faith. Many people did not know the truths of Catholicism. And most particularly of all, people of the 13th century were being bombarded with heresies. And therefore, in the 13th century, you had the development of the mendicant orders. New orders rose up in the church that would not enclose themselves within monastery walls, but rather would get out into the marketplace, get out among the people, begin to teach, begin to preach, begin to catechize, conduct parish missions, conduct retreats, conduct novenas, conduct all the popular devotional exercises that were so prevalent in the 13th century and for many centuries thereafter. Now, these two mendicant orders that began to develop in the 13th century were the Dominicans and the Franciscans. St. Dominic Guzman founded the Dominicans, the Order of Friars Preachers. He was, of course, Spanish by birth. He was a man of, we are told, fiery zeal and holiness. He set out in his young life to try to fight the Albigensians. Now, the Albigensians were yet another heretical group of those days. And as he was traveling around, he was one who personally discovered this lack of faith among many, many people. You see, in those days, every priest did not have the faculty to preach. The only preaching that could be done would be by the bishop or his very specific appointed delegates. Well, if you, if you were not a bishop or delegated by the bishop, you could not preach. And the bishop or his delegates could only see limited numbers of people. And therefore, there were many, many people who never heard sound preaching. And because they never heard sound preaching, they did not have the, the rudiments of faith, the knowledge of faith that they should have had. And also, without having that firm foundation in faith, they were even more susceptible to the teaching of the many heretics who were so rampant in the church in those days. So St. Dominic saw this, and he decided that he had to come up with, he had to develop a religious order, which he did, and which he called the Order of Friars Preachers, who would go to the people and who would explain the truths of faith to them. And because these Friars Preachers also had to have a sound theological basis themselves and a sound philosophical basis themselves, it was not terribly long after St. Dominic began the Dominican Order that we find that the Friars Preachers were not simply not simply going into parishes and preaching, but we also found them serving on university faculties because very bright, brilliant men entered the Friars Preachers, and it was seen very clearly to the superiors, Dominic and others, that many men had talents that lent themselves to the classroom as much as to the pulpit in the parish church. So very early on, the Dominicans were both teachers in universities and they were also preachers in the various parish churches around Europe. Within 50 years after the foundation of the Dominican Order, there were more than 400 Dominican houses scattered all over Europe, and the Dominicans conferred immeasurable benefits on the church and on Christendom in general through their efforts to raise the moral and the intellectual level of Europe. Now, it was this particular Dominican community that St. Thomas Aquinas, perhaps the greatest mind the church ever produced, would enter. The Franciscans were of a somewhat different composition. They were founded not far in time, of course, from the Dominicans, and they were founded by one of the world's most popular saints, Francis of Assisi. He is one of the most appealing figures in medieval history. The intensity of his love for God and man, 
his total detachment from the world, his joy de vivre, joy of living, have really endeared him to generations and generations of people. He acquired the name Francis because of his, as a young man, because of his love for French fashions and for the literature of the French troubadours. And he came from a rather affluent background, but as is the case with so many saints, he gave up the affluent background, and he assumed a life of poverty and of prayer and of solitude. And others gathered around him very quickly and very spontaneously, and the order of friars minor, that we call the Franciscans, was born in the 13th century. The Franciscan rule was approved officially in 1209. Francis wanted individual poverty for the members of his order, and he also wanted corporate poverty for the order in general. Individual poverty was not hard to achieve. Corporate poverty was a bit harder. And Francis had to acquiesce to a certain degree to allow for the reality of the existence in the world. But nonetheless, they were an order of men who were very, very clearly identified with the whole concept of poverty. He placed his order under the direct authority of the Pope and of his minister general. And as we know so well, St. Clair of Assisi, under the direction of Francis, began a second order of Franciscans for women. And then Francis himself, sometime later, began the third order of Franciscans, still very much with us today. And that third order of Franciscans, of course, was for the benefit of the laity. Now, it was this particular community, the Franciscans, that Bonaventure was going to enter. But when he entered them, or shortly after he entered them, it became apparent that Bonaventure was going to have to live the life of a scholar and a theologian, not necessarily the life that most Franciscans were accustomed to uh, in their undertakings as itinerant preachers around Europe. So St. Bonaventure would have a somewhat different kind of a life, and then others in the Franciscan order would follow St. Bonaventure and would also become teachers and professors in European universities. So it was not terribly long after the foundation of both the Dominicans and the Franciscans that you had a Dominican school of theology growing up, and you had a Franciscan school of theology growing up, and they took different, different views of the theological discipline as the years went by. Now, Thomas Aquinas was the great Dominican theologian, the angelic doctor. He's also called the Doctor Communus, the common doctor. And this title has been conferred on him through many, many generations. The reason he's called the common doctor is because of the, the universality, the, the, the timeless character of his teaching, the tremendous scope of his knowledge. He appeals to anyone who is searching for the truth. And interestingly, very interestingly, St. Thomas Aquinas is the only saint to have, his, to have his books, his study, recommended by an ecumenical council of the church. And that ecumenical council was the Second Vatican Council of the 1960s. This is something you do not hear all that frequently about the Second Vatican Council, but they recommended to all students of theology, and particularly to those students of theology preparing for the priesthood, they recommended, and they said, that every such student should learn to examine more deeply with the help of speculation and with St. Thomas as teacher all aspects of the mysteries of salvation and to perceive their interconnection.
That was a strong, strong recommendation from the Second Vatican Council. Thomas, as we know, was the younger son in a large family of the Count of Aquino. He was related to, uh, through his mother, to the Emperor Frederick II. And as a young boy, he was given as an oblate to the famous Benedictine monastery at Monte Cassino. Stayed there for quite a while, but then eventually, because of a series of political intrigues, the Emperor Frederick II told the monks of Monte Cassino they must evacuate the monastery. Well, at the time of the monastic evacuation, Thomas went to the University of Naples to continue his formal studies. And while he was there, he made up his mind that he wanted to be a Dominican, and he, he began to enter the Dominican order. And the story goes that he was kidnapped by some of his brothers, who were very much opposed to his becoming a Dominican. They took him back to the castle, imprisoned him for nearly a year, and finally when they saw that their plans were not working, they allowed him to go and join the Dominicans. He did indeed join the Dominicans. He completed his formal studies. He became a priest. He became a professor. And then he was so well-known theologically that he was given, the, given special attention by the Pope and by the Pope's court, and he followed the papal court around as they traveled to Agnani and Orvieto and Viterbo and Rome. He was kind of a, a resident theologian, not only to the Holy Father, but indeed to many within the papal court. Until his death at the very early age of 48 or 49, Thomas's whole life was writing and teaching and engaging in controversies. We know that he wrote some magnificent works. He wrote De Veritate on the truth. He wrote his commentary on the sentences of Peter Lombard. He wrote his Summa Contra Gentiles. And best known to the world, I suppose, is his Summa Theologica, the fullest exposition of theological teaching ever given to the world. It was, said one commentator, the greatest monument of the age, and it was one of the three works of reference that was laid on the table of the assembly at the Council of Trent, the other two being the Bible and the Pontifical Decretals. It is almost impossible, says one commentator, it's almost impossible for us at this distance of time to realize the enormous influence that St. Thomas exerted over the minds and theology of his contemporaries and their immediate successors. Now, what precisely was it that made St. Thomas so unique? What made his philosophy so appealing? What was it that <clears throat> drew so many to him in his own time and continues to draw all pursuers of the truth to St. Thomas Aquinas? Well, this is the way one contemporary philosopher sums up St. Thomas Aquinas. He writes, the qualities which give Aquinas individuality as one of the very greatest of the world's thinkers are perhaps his exquisite lucidity, his sense of proportion, and his ability to construct a great edifice which is a perfect whole and is informed by a few simple but very poignant leading principles. With respect to the history of Western philosophy, his principal achievement is that he integrated, he integrated Aristotelian philosophical principles with traditional speculative theology. And in doing so, he created a new and wholly original Christian philosophy by remolding and rethinking existing materials and old problems. Really, if we had time to digest that view of St. Thomas, it sums him up very, very beautifully. He took Aristotle and he Christianized him. That's essentially what the definition is saying. And that is what made St. Thomas, his contribution, so extremely unique in the 13th century and so extremely appealing to all those who lived after the 13th century. He also wrote many, many devotional hymns and poems and prayers he was known for outstanding brilliance, but he was also known for outstanding humility. 
He would never criticize anyone. He was always cheerful. He was always pleasant. You would sit with him at table. His fellow Dominicans would sit with him at table and think he was the most humble friar in the world. St. Thomas Aquinas once said that he learned more kneeling at the foot of a crucifix than he ever could possibly have learned writing and thinking and studying and praying and meditating over philosophy and over theology. He was, therefore, an exceptionally, an exceptionally unique man. His marvelous science was far less due to his genius, writes one observer, than to the efficacy of his prayers. He prayed with tears to obtain from God the understanding of his mysteries and abundant enlightenment was vouchsafed to his mind. That's an older description somewhat, but it is indeed a very valid description. Well, his fellow doctor of the 13th century, his contemporary, was St. Bonaventure, a very different kind of a man than St. Thomas Aquinas in many respects, and summed up rather well, I suspect, by one of his biographers this way. This is how Bonaventure is described. His penetrating genius was balanced by the most careful judgment by which, while he dived to the bottom of every subtle inquiry, he cut off, he cut off whatever was superfluous, dwelling only on that knowledge which is useful and solid, or at least necessary, at least necessary to unravel false principles and sophistry of erroneous opinions. In other words, he was a more practical, pragmatic kind of man in in certain ways than Thomas Aquinas. He said, here's the problem. Now let's go at the problem and try to solve the problem and break down the errors of the enemies of the church. And he took all of that information that he needed to break down their errors and he applied it to the intellectual defense of truth by arguing with the enemies of the truth. So in one sense, bringing to mind as St. Bonaventure had, he took a somewhat more pragmatic approach one suspects to problems uh, than did than did St. Thomas Aquinas. Here's a good comparison of the two. Whereas Thomas had elaborated a system of pure philosophy which lay behind and beneath his theology, Bonaventure had tended to choose philosophical opinions that suited his theological ideas. Whereas Bonaventure eliminated those who differed with him by using theological arguments and substituted for Aristotle other thinkers more patient of a Christian interpretation, Thomas met with his opponents on the level of human reason and gave rational arguments for his position. St. Bonaventure was known in the world as Giovanni Fidanza. He was born in Tuscany about the year 1221. He studied the arts in Paris and he joined the Franciscan Order in 1243. After several years of study and advanced degrees, he occupied the Franciscan chair at the University of Paris, and in 1257 he was admitted as a professor of the Faculty of Theology, along with the Dominican Thomas Aquinas. In other words, they were admitted as professors at both at the same time. Bonaventure's life differed somewhat from the life of St. Thomas Aquinas. Bonaventure eventually became a bishop and the Cardinal Archbishop of Albano. So Bonaventure had to divide his life, if you will, uh, between church administration on the one hand and the formal study of and teaching of theology on the other hand. The journey of the mind to God 
was, I suppose, the most famous book that Bonaventure ever wrote, and it really sums up his entire theology very, very well. Bonaventure felt that there were three stages in the, the ascension of any person's mind to God. First of all, you had to find the shadows or the vestiges of God in the sensible world around you. Secondly, you had to seek the image of God in your own soul. And thirdly, you had to go beyond the created things that you saw around you so as to enter into what he called the mystical delights of the knowledge and adoration of God. So it was a three-stepped approach, if you will, in the journey of one's mind to God. But it was a three-stepped approach that, that, you know, he would pragmatically tell you you could take. Anybody could take it. It wasn't for a theologian to take. It was for anyone who sincerely wanted to find God in his or her life. The journey of the mind to God was something that Bonaventure insisted could be done by anyone who was, who was interested in pursuing personal holiness and personal sanctity. So that was the way he developed his theology. He perceived God present everywhere, and he wanted to try to teach others to perceive in their minds and in their hearts the presence of God everywhere. St. Bonaventure said the only reason we cannot find God, the only reason we cannot discover him, is because there are scales on our eyes. And once we allow those scales to drop from our eyes, then God is everywhere. The process is letting the scales drop from one's eyes. Now, a chancellor at the University of Paris, who had known St. Bonaventure very well, summed him up a few years after his time. He said, among all the Catholic teachers or doctors, Bonaventure seems to me the best for enlightening the understanding and at the same time warming the heart. That's a good definition, enlightening the understanding, the mind, and at the same time warming the heart. Bonaventure's works seem to me, this chancellor writes, the most suitable for the instruction of the faithful. They are solid, safe, and devout. And he keeps as far as he can from niceties, not meddling with logical or physical questions which are foreign to the matter at hand. In other words, anything that does not pertain to what you very specifically want to teach that you simply don't use it. That was Bonaventure's approach to teaching. It was his approach to writing. It was his approach to preaching whenever he had opportunity to get up into a pulpit and preach. When he was not preaching, when he was not teaching, when he was not writing, when he was not administering his vast diocese, when he was not concerned with concerns of the Franciscan order, he was praying, and he was praying very devoutly. A spiritual joy is the greatest sign of the divine grace dwelling in a soul, he once wrote, and that spiritual joy simply exuded from Bonaventure at each and every moment of his life. Because of the intense spirituality he had developed, in his own life, he saw in himself a number of great imperfections. Bonaventure was quite a scrupulous man in many ways. He spent long periods of time when he could not receive Holy Communion, until ultimately his spiritual director, of course, told him, you must receive Holy Communion. And many of these fears and worries and doubts that you have are simply the result of the devil trying to get at you. See, he was so intensely close to God that he viewed everything as a complete imperfection on his own part. 
He announced the word of God to people with an energy which kindled a flame in the hearts of those who heard him. Everything was burning with love that came from his mouth. Well, in addition to everything we've talked about, he wrote a number of works of mystical theology. Some of the titles are Concerning Perfection of Life, Soliloquy, and Concerning the Threefold Way. That would be the three steps to try to reach God. Now, when you combine mysticism, academics, and popular preaching, you certainly get a wonderful feel for the breadth and scope of this man's activities and for the large and varied audiences who were touched by him in the course of his earthly life. He was an enormously, enormously effective man. And one commentator years later said, whoever would be both learned and devout, let him read the works of Bonaventure. If you want to be learned and devout, that's a rare, rare combination that a man has given to the, to the, to the church. One can, one can read Bonaventure to increase his theological knowledge. One can read Bonaventure to become a holier, holier person. This is to be understood of his spiritual treatises. The joys of heaven were the frequent meditation of his soul, and he endeavored by his writings to excite in others the same fervent desire for our heavenly country. And he did it, and he did it extremely well. What a varied life he had. As a Franciscan, he had many of the difficulties of his own order to contend with, and he contended with them very well. He wrote the official Franciscan biography of Francis of Assisi. It seemed as though there was no limit to this man's scope of activity. For that matter, it seemed as though there was no limit to the scope of activity engaged in by the Dominican doctor of the church, Thomas Aquinas. Here we have, then, the 13th century, producing Thomas, the Dominican, Bonaventure, the Franciscan, the angelic and seraphic doctors, and how grateful we as a church are for that century and for those men. <laughs> 